I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson, and in a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American empire and national security state operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. Producers credits for this edition of Parallax Views. Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The War Nerd, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Orc, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Fabian, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace, and The Mayor, Framework, M-E-E-R, Framework. If you'd like your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, consider joining those listeners at the $10 tier or above at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Again, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And now, on to the show. Hey there, Parallax News listeners. On this edition of the program, we've got another double feature edition of the show for you. Later on in the program, we'll be joined by Larry Hancock, author of a number of books, including Creating Chaos, Covert Political Warfare from Truman to Putin. And of course, that conversation will continue our examination of the conflict in Ukraine And Larry Hancock will provide his own perspective, which may differ from some of our previous perspectives, and which you may agree with in some ways and disagree with in other ways. In any case, I think it's a fascinating conversation that will provide food for thought. But first, Mike Swanson of Wall Street Window, and also the author of such books as The War State and Why the Vietnam War, joins us to discuss the topic of skyrocketing gas prices, as well as the economy in light of the Ukraine war. Additionally, Mike will talk with us a little bit about his thoughts on cryptocurrencies and apps like Robinhood. So with that in mind, let's get right to the conversation with Mike Swanson of Wall Street Window. Welcome back to Parallax Views, friend of the show, Mike Swanson of the great Wall Street Window website, also the author of a number of books, including The War State and Why the Vietnam War. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Uh, Good to talk with you. So, Mike, I wanted to have you on because I thought you may have some insights into uh, the latest news with these skyrocketing gas prices and uh, just the energy news happening now. Uh, I know that you're not necessarily uh, an expert in all of these things, but I, I think you have a, a sort of bird's eye view of some of it because you keep up with everything. 
Yeah, I mean, my background was I co-managed a hedge fund over 10 years ago and, you know, I invested in commodities and energy stocks and, and so forth. Um, and I still am, actually. But um, there's two main points I think are important. And the second one, uh, the first one is that I believe what's going on now with oil prices, they've obviously spiked up since this war started, uh, but so has the price of grain and corn, uh, wheat um, in a dramatic way that's gonna impact uh, food prices at the grocery store, but really hit countries hard that don't produce as much food, uh, such as Egypt, Afghanistan in particular. Uh, but all these moves, I believe, are actually began last year. We saw a rise in inflation. Uh, the official CPI, Consumer Price Index, went up uh, starting around October last year. And at the beginning of last year, the Federal Reserve chairman, uh, Janet Yellen, was claiming, uh, oh, inflation's going to appear in the spring and be transitory was the phrase he was using and it would go away. Well, by October, it was clear it wasn't going away uh, and it increased. And, and this was the, the trend of these markets as we entered this year, as pull, I pulled up a chart I'm looking at as I'm talking with you, and oil prices were $85 a barrel uh, right around Thanksgiving and they dipped to below 70. Now, now it shot up to 130, but it was around 85, and I could easily have seen it, you know, trading between 85 and 90 or something without the Ukraine war. So, in my view, the the Ukraine situation is simply exasperating and inflation it's accelerating. Accelerating, yeah, that's the right word. Accelerating trends that are already happening um, and, or, and going to happen. And I've been telling people when it comes to the financial markets that uh, we're going through a combination of, or starting one, of things that happened in the 1970s and I believe the summer of 2000. So what happened in the 1970s obviously was inflation. Um, and, and the reasons for that, you know, I believe had to do with the Vietnam War Nixon going off the, the dollar standard, I mean, the gold standard, uh, and so forth. In the summer of 2000, you had a top in overvalued stocks in the NASDAQ, which created a two and a half year bear market. So now I believe what we're seeing is inflation that's not just simply for a few months, but is going to continue for, for probably years. And just like it did in the 1970s, you know, inflation of six to 10% a year, uh, if you do that for close to a decade, you'll inflate away the national debt. So it's not really uh, a giant issue. Um, but at the same time, these overvalued stocks that people in the stock market have, <laughs> you, this may not affect uh you know, people that don't have investments, but the people in the stock market, they're heavily invested in technology stocks, uh, the, 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 and younger people even with Robinhood apps that 
got into all this stuff. Uh, I think we actually talked about AMC at the peak of that. Robin yeah, the, the GameStop Oculus. Yeah, yeah, GameStop and all that. That was like the peak of this speculative mania. But most, a lot of these people are still in and just holding this stuff. And I think they're going to really get hurt. But that's um, that's like the financial outlook. But the the other the, that I feel fairly confident and certain about uh, is is happening. But what I don't feel certain about is what are the actual geopolitical ramifications of all this and you know I, go ahead well r- real quick i wanted to ask you, you you said that we've been on this trend for how long because i know at the beginning we actually i think really started having you on the show around the beginning of the pandemic so where have we been since the pandemic and and do you think the pandemic has played a role in where we're at now yeah i i, I it's sped up this it's an event that sped up this process so i'm my view has been that the united states um since i started investing really um when i well when i got started in the 90s i was a i believe we had speculative bubbles and the best argument i heard to explain it was basically from libertarians and ron paul they were blaming the fed saying the Fed keeps rates too low, creates these bubbles, they blow up. And as long as they keep doing this, each bubble is going to be bigger and bigger and be a disaster. And it's all linked to the national debt. Now, I've I've held that view. I've come to differ a little bit on the actual cause of all this. I'm not so sure it's just the Fed, but just the system of uh, corporate capitalism and banking, creating excess capital but it's all you know convoluted you know it's a whole complicated topic but the important thing to answer your question is that yeah it's been my view that uh as some in the left that's in the right have argued that this was all going to result in a crisis one day and in, in, in most likely it would be an infl- result in inflation the dollar going into a bear market which can be the end of the dollar as the reserve currency and, the, and, and probably the United States as the global hegemon. Uh, it, so, in, so in the back of my mind, I've thought this could be the end of the uh, American empire, you know, or, or as we know it, but by 2030 or something. But I, honestly, I'm not, I still believe uh, that financial story is gonna happen with this inflation but I don't know if it's going to really, I don't really know what is going to be happen with the dollar. Um, in, in the Ukraine war that's happened um, is why. I don't know the well, the argument, there's an argument before the war started, um, apparently inside the Biden administration, not to put the type of sanctions on Russia that we see. They've cut them off from the central bank. Um, they, 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 what they've done, or they, they've um, banished their central bank from doing currency transactions uh, with other central banks. So Putin and, and the Russians, they've built up dollar reserves, gold reserves to weather an economic uh, crisis that they're been thrown into by the 
by these actions, but by not allowing them to use their dollar reserves, um, they <laughs> have, you know, they, they basically told them, okay, you got U.S. dollars, you can't use them. So can other central banks use them as their own reserve currency? Uh, if not, then what's the future of the dollar as the reserve currency? And, and these type of questions, evidently, going according to some stories in the Wall Street Journal before the war started, was telling the Biden administration this argument, oh, we don't want to go to these extreme sanctions. And the first day of the war, he didn't. Uh, and, and there are stories also saying Germany didn't want to do it either. But then within 48 hours, they did. Uh, so I don't know, you know, how this is all going to play out. I mean, war, the fog of war is real. Yeah, I don't, you know, in, 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 uh... well, especially if, you know, let, let's say the, the worst case scenario happens and we do a no fly zone and, you know, this turns into World War III. I mean, it's completely unpredictable uh, where all of this goes from there. I mean, it's interesting. I, I think the past few years has been, you know, uh, not, what, who, who's the thinker? Um, I think it's Nicholas Nassim Taleb. It's been, uh, you know, the era of rolling black swan events, you know, that have uh, sort of taken everyone by surprise. Yeah, and I don't have confidence that uh, the people in government or media representatives either know everything that's going on, much less are able to predict the future. And I say that as someone that's read during the Kennedy era, their national, some, a lot of their national security meetings about Vietnam, that, you know, that there's a couple of times where his security advisor said, I don't know what's going on over there. You know, it's, that's honest. But also I've read some of the transcripts of historic uh, Federal Reserve meetings, for example, in, in the year 2008, before the crash of that year, they didn't have any real understanding in, in January of that year of the subprime crisis and you know how bad things were going to be and you can you can find these on the Federal Reserve website these transcripts they have a transcript of the very meeting in which uh, it was Nixon and the Treasury Secretary who took the dollar off they entered the Bretton Woods system and took the dollar off the gold standard. And at that Federal Reserve meeting, they were saying, they were totally surprised. They didn't know it was going to happen. They're saying, oh, we'll be back on it in a week. Well, that obviously didn't happen. So, and, and um, so it's, uh, but you have a no fly zone. I mean, all these discussions are kind of moot then. So um, real quick with, with the gas prices, what do you think this sort of entails for everyday people and also for the stock market? Well, I, I mean, it's, it's a terrible situation. I mean, in 2008, um, there was a bull market during that decade, starting around the time of the Iraq war in, in oil. Uh, oil went up. And there were movies uh, uh, claiming that one day there's going to be an oil shortage. Uh, oh, who's that guy? Um, collapse there's a 
Oh, Michael Rupert. Yeah. Michael Rupert yeah. was big, right? In, in those years. And, and there was a real bull market and, and gas prices were going up. And, um, in, in, uh, and then in 2008, they spiked um, just like they are now, I think say from 90 to 130 in like two weeks. And I remember at the time I was going to a, week, a weekly poker game <laughs> and people at the game were in a panic about, oh, you know, how, and that was the top. Uh, and it went, it went back down. Uh, so the panic subsided, but now um, I don't think it's going to go down uh, like it did then. Why is that? Go on. Um, well, I, I think this is more the start of a, a bull market or early in a bull market where that was the end. And also the Ukraine impact is real. I mean, the Russia is the second biggest producer of oil in the world. And, and that's going to impact the whole global oil price. And it already is. So I don't think the oil price, you know, it may go down, but it may not go down to $60 a barrel where it was in December. It may go Do down you think to- this is why we're seeing Biden going to like speak with the Venezuelans about, Hey, can we do something with a deal with oil? You know? Yeah, I think so. I think so. But, Oh, one other key factor thing happening here is that um, the problem of inflation, you know, was started last year and it was hurting the Biden administration politically. And they knew that. Um, and the thing is now by have with Putin invading Ukraine and these sanctions and all these things happening, now the whole narrative that I gave about oh it's about debt and you know all these underlying trends and this and zero interest rates, um, which happened after as a result of the COVID shutdowns, they dropped rates to zero, uh, which is one of the big problems when rates are so low, lower than the rate of inflation. You know it it can cause people to speculate in real estate. And, and jack up prices. And in the 1970s, the rates weren't zero. So this that's a huge problem why I think it's going to, you know, be, be a lasting thing, not just come and go. But with Putin invading uh, Ukraine, now the Biden administration has an explanation of inflation that they can give people, oh, it's it's the fault of Putin or it's the fault of Russia, this crisis. It, has, it doesn't have anything to do with the Federal Reserve or the economic debts, the United States or anything. It's just it's just this. And a lot of and most people are probably going to believe that um, uh, most likely. And this. So I, I'm curious. Um, I don't know if it was in a conversation we had or if it was a conversation you had with Chuck Ocelli, but. I, I thought I heard you say somewhere that you've been speaking to people with differing views about a lot of uh, what's going on with the Ukraine stuff. And I, I think uh, you have one person that said uh, this whole Ukraine thing may actually have a bigger impact than even like COVID did. Well, uh, that, that's what I believe. Uh, but I, I spoke to someone in, in uh, Greece that lives in Greece, and they told me this is that's what they told me, that this is going to have a bigger impact 
than, than uh, COVID. I should have asked him what he meant by that. <laughs> but uh, I, I think it will. I think it could have a bigger impact than uh, on the future of the American empire than 9-11 did. What, what, think, why a bigger impact than 9-11? Well, I, I think uh, when 9-11 happened, the supremacy of the United States, you know, I didn't think it was going to go away. I didn't think it was going to have a big economic impact. Uh, this is in a way I, that I really don't know where it's going. I mean, for one, uh, in our lifetime, we have had this globalization and free trade um, that's defined the global system and, and you know, really work everywhere in the world. And now- well, we, We've also never had, I mean, what Putin is doing is, uh, you know, I've heard international relations people say this. I mean, this is his challenge in a way to the sort of post-Westphalian order. I mean, he, he's literally challenging the uh, the current order with this invasion of Ukraine. Yeah, and 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 yeah, that, that's that's what I'm trying to say is the order is is broken. Uh, you know, but with these sanctions, the global free trade order is broken, and and what's going to happen? Are we going to split off into blocks? with Russia as a block and maybe China as a block and the US or what we're in, in, in Europe. We're, we're, I don't know where all this is really going, but yeah, uh, perhaps um, this is the only challenge that's been made to, to the global order since World War II, really. I mean, because Russia, didn't re- I don't think Russia direct re- Russia really the Soviet Union I mean didn't really overtly challenge it I don't believe they just by simply existing posed an alternative but they didn't take any actions I don't think that directly you know challenged it as is being done now so it is this possibly like the end of globalization in a way then or Am well, I misreading you? No, I, 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 it could be. I don't. That's what I mean. I, I don't. I don't know. I mean, for example, what's going to happen with Russia? I mean, the assumption in the American media is that they're destroyed, that their economy is destroyed. You know, their stock market's gone. Their currency's collapsed. They've been, you know, the dollar. You know, they they can't use dollars in their banking system um, to support the ruble. But does that, you know, so they've, uh, they've been knocked down, but does that really mean that they're going to collapse? Does it really mean that their government could be, over, you know, that Putin's going to be kicked out? Or is it, I think that's what a lot of Americans, American media is assuming. But why couldn't they, you know, they haven't lost every trading partner in the world. Um, they still have India. They they still have China. Uh, they still have a lot of ties in the Middle East. Uh, Israel hasn't turned their back on them. Israel, the prime minister, was flew to Russia just several days ago, and the Israeli Jerusalem Post. I was reading an article there, and it said they're neutral between Ukraine and Russia. They're not picking sides. So um, there, Russia's not completely isolated 
from the rest of the world. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I wouldn't want to live there. Uh, I mean, I go back and think of a remark about President Eisenhower in one of his National Security Council meetings. Uh, he said he didn't want, he wanted to control the spending on the military because he didn't, because if we didn't, you'd have runaway inflation. And he said the whole free market system would be destroyed and we would become an armed camp. And I think in, a, in essence, that's what is going to happen is happening. And what, what, what does an armed camp? What do you mean? A military state. Okay. Completely. Not, not I mean, we got a national security state, but I mean, a complete one, which is what I, th- I think Russia is going to become, you know, they've, their media is now totally controlled by the state. They're jailing protesters. Yeah, they've actually gotten rid of a f- like one or two liberal media networks in Russia. They're, they've been shut down. So, yeah. And they just talked about the other day, or maybe it was this morning, of nationalizing foreign businesses. So um, they're going to become, I think, what Eisenhower talked about, a complete like military dictatorship in um you know, perhaps that's what South Korea, North Korea were during the Korean War, or North, or the, or the North, both sides in Vietnam were. But that's definitely, it appears, where Russia's heading, and that could survive. I mean, it, it's no, uh, you know, these people celebrating all people in the media, in, in newspapers, celebrating all this and assuming. Putin's going to lose and this is going to turn out the way they want. It's not certain to me. So, um, well, I, I'm going to be honest here. I, I don't even know that he's going to lose the gamble he's making in Ukraine. I, I see a lot of people already triumphant saying, you know, yeah. this is going to be his Vietnam. I'm not as sure about that because it, it, to me, it's not like Iraq. I think Putin is willing to do things that America wasn't willing to do in Iraq, by which I mean, I think he's willing to starve out Ukrainians and try to cut them off from any supplies, which would be very brutal and actually could be a game changer in this conflict. And it would be a horrifying game changer, but I'm not sure America would have done that in a conflict. Um, and that could play, uh, play out in Putin's favor you know, uh, horrifically enough. Yeah, sadly, it, it looks like that's what he's heading for, heading towards is siege tactics around some key cities. And it looks like now he's trying to terrorize people with bombing to flee areas. And he's taking smaller cities. Uh, but I mean, I mean, this is just the general, I mean, we don't really have detailed information. I mean, I, I looked at the New York, the New York Times has this map they keep showing people with arrows of where these armies are, but it doesn't tell you any, it doesn't tell you the size. And that's not to say, that's not, I'm not saying that as like a, for listeners, I'm not saying that as like a, oh, I want Russia to win or, or anything like that. But I, I, I think there's a possibility that this gamble may pay off for him, even if we don't like that it pays off for him. If the, do you get what I'm saying? Yeah, no, no. In, in, in my the stuff I was saying 
about the non-military aspects is the assumption that, you know, say he can win his war. Well, I mean, he can rebuild his economy and it'll be different. The Soviet Union existed for a long time with the economy that was a lot of aspects of it were a lot less efficient than the West. There's no doubt. Um, I mean, the the Russian state won't be as strong as the as China, but it, it won't be anyway because China is so much bigger. But that's I also think that's what people are underestimating of Russia. You know, they say, oh, the, all it is is a, like John McCain said, it's just a, a an oil station with nuclear weapons. Well, it, it's a glorified gas really station, true. is what people have said. Yeah, that's not really true. Historically, it's not been true for hundreds of years. I mean, it's a giant country. I mean, with a huge population, it, it, just by that fact, it's going to dominate. Uh, it's um, historically, it's dominated sphere of influence. It just as Germany and France have been the most powerful states in Europe, just by pure size and resources in them. So then, the last thing I wanted to touch upon you you had mentioned uh, the whole GameStop apocalypse yeah. uh, deal. What has happened since then? What is going on with these things like the Robinhood app? Are, are people still buying into this stuff? Well, um, I, I don't I don't have the exact figures off the top of my head, but um, it it was around eleven million people got onto that app, and which is quite a bit. And in the summer, the company went public. And they started a marketing campaign to try to get whoever was left. And uh, they were doing a camp, if I remember right, it was in alliance, with, I think it was Burger King. Like if you go, anyway, they're giving, they're basically giving away free accounts and you get like five bucks or something in crypto coins. And, and, and that's like reaching to the bottom of the barrel of, this, the brokerage industry, you're actually giving people money. But anyway, I, that's, I'm kind of rambling to, to get to the point. It, the, the number of counts peaked out in the summer and it has declined. The number of trades going through Robinhood has also declined. It's probably around half what it was, but there's still a lot of dedicated people and it's just going to, I mean, honestly, I, I think it's going to take a bear market and time of these people losing money. And then they just get out and they're done. So it, that's typically I, how it works. I've known people that, that were really interested in getting involved in Robin Hood and, and whatnot. So I, I guess I wanted you to be able to say, it, it seems like these kind of apps want people to get involved but there's a real risk that if you get involved, you can get very easily wrecked, especially if you don't know how the stock market works. Oh yeah, that ninety percent I, 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 of the people will lose money if they haven't already. Um, and the problem with the app, there, there's a uh, there's a book that just came out called The Revolution That Wasn't, all about this. Uh, and it explains it. I just read it. The, I, I may uh, have to find the author of that book. <laughs> yeah, it, it's 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 doing selling pretty good. But one of the things, um, yeah, it's he points out that the way the app is designed, 
it, it just shows you a list of things other people are buying. And then the daily price changes of all these stocks. So there's no real information to guide you into making any real decision based on anything except this is what other people are doing. Can't, so that, can't that get you suckered into like pump and dump type things? Oh, yeah, yeah, it does. For sure. And, and, and that's that's a whole other, you know, that's probably, I, I believe that's what a lot of the crypto market is in particular. All these little other coins you hear about or heard about that come and go. Um, so, but, you know, to do real investing, you, you got to invest in, if you're buying these stocks, you, you know, for you need to know the earnings, you know, what's the industry, something about it, not just, oh, other people are buying it. You know, they're not going to tell you when to sell. <laughs> so, yeah. I, I mean, I know you you're, you can't like give out actual, like necessarily financial advice, but I, I'm assuming the message of this, if we had one is maybe be very, um, be very careful with these apps. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's so bad. I, I, um, no, I, I think they damage people and, and they're terrible. So to, to give an example of how um, they, you can, I, I, I opened one up to see what it was like. And you can, any broker, you know, if you fill out the forms, they'll let you borrow money. It's called margin. So if you have $1,000, they'll let you buy $2,000 worth of stock. You, you, your money that you deposit in other stocks you own, that's the collateral for the money they let you borrow. And that collateral, you know, that's what you, that's what the accounts really worth. But on Robinhood, the way the app is designed, if you do this, they make it appear that that borrowed money is also what your account's worth. This, I don't know if this makes sense, but Say, say your account is, say you got $1,000 in assets. If you borrow another thousand, they'll call that assets. So I think it's, it's very, I can see it's be very confusing, you know, easy to sucker someone who doesn't know what they're doing. Into, it's, it sounds like it's a, it's a easy to find a mark, as yeah, the yeah, yeah. would say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, I mean, it, it suckers people into taking bigger risks than they should, uh, even if they know what they're doing. <laughs> they shouldn't. Yeah, it's that good. It's this is terrible. It sounds like it promotes risk over like any level of safety. Yeah, that's exactly what it does. And it's so bad. And it doesn't really teach you how to do it doesn't really train you or teach you what you're doing. So uh, there was a kid like in 2020, who I don't remember how much money he had in there, but a couple thousand dollars, maybe. And this account balance thing I just described to you, it's it's not it's not real. It's not real. It just looks like it is, and that balance can temporarily go negative. Uh, but you're not really losing money because they're, it's like they're clearing transactions, and 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 it, it can temporarily do that. And it did. It, this kid, it went negative on this kid. Uh, like a million dollars or something. And he thought he lost a million dollars and killed himself. So that's, that's pretty crazy, you know, terrible. So 
out of curiosity, when we're talking about these apps or even uh, the, the different type of cryptocurrencies, I mean, you've you've been around uh, libertarian type circles before. I, I wouldn't say that you're necessarily libertarian. I, I think you uh, are sort of on the center of things in a lot of ways politically these days. But why do you think so many libertarians have gotten into uh, this cryptocurrency stuff? And I, I, I thought of that recently because um, I think it was Peter Schiff was real mad at his libertarian son <laughs> as he said, why are you into cryptocurrency? I'm not giving you an inheritance. This is ridiculous. This is, I mean, and he's, Peter Schiff's a hardcore libertarian saying this crypto stuff is nonsense, uh, but you have a lot of these younger libertarians that are really into it. So I, I was curious, do you have a handle on why that is? Well, um, I, there's, I, there's always been a, a close linkage to gold and silver investors and libertarianism. Uh, like Peter Schiff, his dad was a big advocate of, his dad got jailed for saying you can't, his dad used to teach courses on how to evade taxes or how you, you know, I'm, to, I, am I mixing it up? Is it, is it, no, uh, okay. you, you got it right. I'm talking about uh, Peter Schiff. Peter Schiff Senior. Okay, he's he's passed away, and th this guy was big in the '70s before the Peter Schiff you know of. His dad, his dad, Peter, Sch the grandfather of the kid you're talking about. He was a libertarian advocate of not paying your taxes, and he went into jail for this. And and but anyway, the the and he was advocating investing gold and silver. Ron Paul had a gold and silver like newsletter in the 1970s yeah they, these people are like uh, they're sort of like the gold bugs and to me yeah, it's yeah, like yeah, the, gold, yeah, yeah. the yeah. gold bugs i i get the impression they're not necessarily fans of the crypto people no no so but what I, what i think happened is this gold bug type of community has been heavily linked to libertarianism going back decades and but what happened but gold went into a bear market starting around 2012 and fell for five years at the same time that gold was going down that's when crypto appeared so i think what happened was the younger a lot of young these younger libertarian types they just simply took all the arguments about gold and put it onto crypto and they may not even know that's what they were doing but i think that's what happened and crypto went up and Nothing like a bull market to get people excited about about something. Why why do you I, I promise to let you go after this, but why do you think so many people uh are still buying into this whole uh crypto thing despite I mean over the years it's gone up and down and up and down. It seems very unstable. Um why do you think people are are still pulled into the whole crypto world? Well um, and wh why do you remain skeptical of it is a I guess okay. even a better question. Yeah, well, in in all these markets, like the GameStop situation, uh, speculative spec, market speculation doesn't matter what what the market is. When you get when you see something going up, uh, and the faster it goes up, other people start talking about it. They'll share their they'll brag. They'll show their account balances going up. You know, I bought a hot stock; it's going up. And, and that's what the crypto people are doing that dogecoin's going up i made ten thousand dollars and that starts creating a mentality of people thinking that, that that's normal and if i buy this other coin or 
then I can get, I can do that too. It's not really normal. Um, they're, they're seeing uh, rampant speculation. Let me put it this way. There's like, say there's a thousand crypto coins. You're, you're being, you're being, what's being shared are the ones going up, not the ones going down or that didn't do anything. So people start to think that, oh, what's going on in these few things is what is normal. And so I'm going to throw money at that opportunity and, and try to get lucky. Um, and then when someone starts to do that, then they'll believe in it. They'll just convince themselves. They'll get interested in the, you know, what people are saying about it, which they could be just hyping you up, tell, talking nonsense, which is usually what's happening. So what, what's the game there? So you hype people up uh, to get more people to invest in it, and then you, you yourself pull out? Yeah, sure. <laughs> but with crypto, I mean, people do that with penny stocks in the stock market all the time. I, I believe sometimes in larger stocks, but with crypto, uh, it's unique from that because it's not really regulated. You can, it's against the law. There's a lot of things, well, there's a lot of things one could do in the stock market and go to jail that they can do in the crypto markets. And, and no one would bat an eye. You know, the regular, it's not regulated enough. So I think it attracts or attracted a lot of real and savory people, <laughs> put it that way. But like John McAfee. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> who, I, who I have interviewed. Well, when he was alive, but <laughs> well, he was a fun character to hear. You know, as long as I wouldn't want him to shoot me, but yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, I, I always think of that because uh, you know my thought has always been John was so big on it. Everyone needs to get into Bitcoin. Everyone needs to buy these cryptocurrencies. <laughs> and I'm like, if it's John McAfee telling you to do that. And you're not thinking, what is this? Is this guy? He seems like a snake oil salesman. Why is he trying to get me to buy Bitcoin? Like, <laughs> but at least it's enter he's entertaining. That, no, know? that's true. That's true. Um, so in closing, anything else you want to say? What, what do you hope listeners get out of the conversation we've been having? Well, I mean, the, the thing is, the, the big, the, unfortunately, the biggest thing I'm most certain of everything we talked about is that inflation is real and here to stay. So if you want to invest and you look for things that protect yourself or, or will benefit actually from that. So um, that's, that's the, the main gist of, you know, useful, more certain things I got to say, the rest of it. Yeah, we'll watch unfold. You know what? What what things would you benefit from, like in an inflationary period? Well, I I do believe owning gold and silver would be one, but real estate, um, real estate did very well in the nineteen seventies because if you own a house, I mean, well, if you if you buy a house and rent it out, you can raise the rent, and so 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 real estate typically goes up just with inflation or, or even better. Uh, so um, unfortunately, I'm too lazy to become some real estate uh, landlord or something. <laughs> but, you know, owning a house just to own it and live in it, it's a good investment. Uh, it's I don't think this is like 2008 or anything like that's going to happen. 
Um, other than that, inside the stock market, um, I still think energy stocks are good. And you can buy real estate stocks too. Um, but the worst thing to buy is bonds, um, which that's actually the biggest problem. It's not necessarily the Robin Hood person that's you know, believing in overvalued stocks or something. It's actually the average person that thinks they're safely investing by having half their money in bonds, you know, they think that's safe, but bonds, you know, they don't, they're not paying any interest and, and they're not going to, you know, you're not, you're going to be left behind as long as the rate of inflation is higher than uh, the yield you're getting on these bonds they are going to fall in value. So they're like the worst investment. Uh, so that's a, uh, and then that's like CDs in the bank or cash in the bank. Doesn't do any good either. Well, hey, Mike Swanson, Wall Street Window. I want to thank you again. Uh, people can just visit wallstreetwindow.com, right? Yeah, that's right. Just go there and there's a thing at the top to subscribe if you want to get the email newsletter. And I highly recommend people subscribe. Thank you again, Mike Swanson. Thank you. Good talk with that conversation with Mike Swanson. Now we turn our attention fully to the crisis in Ukraine with Larry Hancock, author of Creating Chaos, Covert Political Warfare from Truman to Putin. It's a lengthy conversation clocking in at around an hour and I would say seven or eight minutes. So I want to get right to it again. You're about to hear my conversation with Larry Hancock, author of Creating Chaos, Covert Political Warfare from Truman to Putin. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I've been meaning to have on the show for some time now. Uh, We've finally made it happen. Um, Larry Hancock, author of a number of books, and I think one that's particularly relevant at this moment is entitled uh, Creating Chaos, Covert Political Warfare from Truman to Putin. So, Larry, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine, thank you. Just ready for spring. (laughs) So, for my listeners, maybe you could talk uh, a little bit about your background because you've written a number of books on uh, all kinds of topics, um, including uh, covert political actions, uh, JFK, uh, the assassinations of the 60s, and this book, uh, Creating Chaos, Covert Political Warfare from Truman to Putin. Uh, maybe you could tell me how you got involved in this line of research. Uh, sure. And basically, my interest for a very long time it has been Cold War history, uh, the events of the 60s on, on through the Cold War period. Um, it's where, where I started most of my writing was in research and writing was in regard to the political assassinations of the, the 60s. But I also have always been interested in uh, military history, national security. And so I, I extended that on into several other aspects of the, the period, uh, covert warfare in a, in a book called Shadow Warfare, uh, a study of the uh, Cuba project and the Bay of Pigs in a book called In Denial, which was really a study of deniable warfare. So basically the the writing covers the gamut from 
through the political history, through the end of that century. And then I, I got into some, some extensions that I really hadn't planned on. And some of the books started going on into, into the 20, this, this current century into the last couple of decades and dealing with the war on terror, terror attacks, uh, response to surprise attacks. I did a book called Surprise Attacks. So it's, it's pretty well covered the gamut of Cold War history extending into what's become the second Cold War, unfortunately. So then creating chaos, uh, what would you say the thesis of the book is? And also, what do we mean by covert political warfare? Yeah, the, the thesis of the book, and, and as I said, I started writing about uh, shadow warfare, which is essentially covert military warfare, uh, deniable, deniable warfare from regime change to a variety of other uh, de deniable conventional warfare activities, if you will, re related to regime change. Um, basically, I ended up looking at that and asking the question of where does that go? What was the range? If, if you want to look at something like regime change through shadow warfare, is, is there a steady state of that? Is there just a state of political warfare that's, that's ongoing all the time between adversaries? And so that's, that's where I extended that into the book called uh, Creating Chaos, which is essentially a, a look at the gamut of political warfare from just ordinary political jousting and posturing and economic uh, competition between adversary nations all the way down the line into aggressive political warfare, uh, trying to manipulate foreign governments to bring them in line with, with your <laughs> objectives. Uh, uh, and at at the last extent, actually overthrowing foreign governments or essentially taking control of them in regime change activities and, and extending that into elements of conventional warfare, which of course is what we now see in Ukraine and what we've seen before in other places where it, that's the end of the spectrum is where something that's political goes from just uh, you know, not not actually outright conventional warfare to the worst possible case where you bring military action into play. If you could, too, since we're using this term political, uh, covert political warfare, uh, when people hear the term covert, they may think, uh, you know, oh, that that sounds like something in a, a spy novel or is this <laughs> spy fiction stuff? Do you have any examples of uh, real life uh, covert political warfare that could maybe crystallize um, this sort of concept and how it's a very real thing. It's not uh, just the stuff of James Bond movies. It's just definitely not just, you know, spy versus spy or something like that. Uh, basically, it's deniable action, uh, whether or not you're using political operatives, uh, or, or actually paid assets or uh, subverting uh, the wishes of a, of a target nation. Basically, it's, it's all done so that it's deniable. That if, I think a perfect example of that, and, and 
<laughs> frankly, it, it never really works, is where uh, let, let's take a look at something that the United States did back during the Cold War, and that was uh, trying to unseat the Castro regime in Cuba, which is something that went on for decades and, and led all the way from just deniable political manipulation and economic warfare to outright military action at, at the Bay of Pigs. Uh, that was always conducted as if it, if it was not American foreign policy. You know, uh, the State Department did not break relations with Cuba during most of the activities. Uh, it continued some, some sort of relation for years before that occurred and with a overt position of neutrality. Usually these things are done, you know, with a great deal of hypocrisy, uh, with, with the nation that's engaging the political warfare declaring it's neutral, while at the same time going through a whole range of activities intended to undermine its <laughs> target nation or bring it in line or to subvert it. Deniable, the word deniable is always in play because whatever activity is being conducted, you know, no, nobody declares a state of war. Nobody, it, it's not supposed to go that far. Uh, so it's, it's political activity targeting a particular foreign nation uh, and essentially trying to bring it in line with the, your objectives, whatever nation is conducting it. And it can somewhat, it can be a very, it can be at a very mild stage. I mean, like all, all nations are looking to, to establish relationships to their own benefit. And so it can start in a rather friendly fashion just by you know positive reinforcement and influence and all the way in the end uh just short of open warfare so then with regards to vladimir putin and what we see happening now with the invasion of ukraine uh what is your understanding here of uh putin's game i i guess we could call it and how it fits into the hypothesis of your book, Creating Chaos. Well, the interesting thing about Putin's game is, is that it really illustrates the gamut of, uh, of the activities that can be conducted in political warfare, uh, starting out at a, at a rather positive relationship uh, with Western nations uh, and going to where we are now. And the reason I titled the 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 book or subtitle of the book from, from Truman to Putin is that, that Putin in this century is applying many of the practices that the United States applied earlier in, in the first Cold War. Uh, and it's, it's almost a reverse image of, of what the United States was doing back in the 20th century. And so the game really, Putin started his, what, what Putin wanted was a, essentially a very strong relationship, a very positive relationship that would restore a lot of the power and a lot of the prestige that Russia had when it was the Soviet Union. Putin had been a, of course, we all know Putin had been a high-level KGB officer. He had played this political warfare game from a 
deniable covert standpoint during the war, Cold War. And, and, and as, as he himself has said, he felt one of the, the biggest disasters of the last centuries, or it's really something that he was very sad about, was the, the collapse of the Soviet Union and essentially the loss of Russia from its, its fall from its rightful place in the world. And he has been very open in stating that, that his, his end game, his goal was always to restore Russia and the Russian Federation uh, to a position of, of geopolitical strength as a, as a major power. And he felt that they had lost that. So that's, he's been very open. One of the things that I, I, I quote, constantly quote Putin in creating chaos, because Putin is, is very open and very direct about what he wants and what his game plan has been. It's just that when he started, it appears, there's no doubt about it, he started, quite frankly, was historically what is referred to as a charm offensive. When he, he started with a series of openings and negotiations, especially with Western Europe, that were going to leverage Russia as an energy supplier, as, as a you know, major global source of energy, that would bond Russia in a very positive relationship with Western Europe. And that would give him the economic leverage, the power base he needed to extend that to Africa, to Latin America. And his, this, what we see culminating in the Ukraine is something that started out 180 degrees different in what he himself you know, described as an effort to create a very positive relationship with the West. So positive, in fact, that Russia even joined NATO, something that's, that's not much discussed these days and something where he, he totally changed his views. But uh, early in this century, uh, ostensibly in regard to being threatened by terrorists out of Chechnya and other er areas of the Caspian and Baltic, he actually uh, joined, the Russian Federation joined at a, at a low level in planning and relationship with NATO and has actually continued that. Uh, they, just, they just don't hold those meetings anymore. But he was, there was talk at the time where there was possibility that the Russian Federation might fully even join NATO. And that, that was the beginning. Uh, we can we can go through how that did not work, but uh, basic to your, your question is even in the beginning, his stated view was to restore Russia as a, a superpower, essentially. I do want to get in, into the NATO issue more, but uh, just to clarify here. So a lot has been made of uh, Putin trying to replicate the Soviet Union. When we talk about wanting to replicate the Soviet Union, though, I don't I don't get the impression he wants to bring back. Uh, I don't think his interest is in communism necessarily. If anything, I almost see him as probably even having sympathies towards like uh, the czarist Russia. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but it, it seems like his real interest is geopolitical, uh, less so than some ideological um, adherence to, to, say, Marxism or something like that. Oh, I would agree absolutely. If he really is trying to replicate anything, it would be the Russian Empire. Uh, 
if you look at the sphere of influence that he would like to have in terms of geographies, it would be much more geographically on the scale of the Russian empire. And, and from an economic standpoint, um, and a uh, essentially a relationship building standpoint, uh, not not an ideological standpoint. That, that's I, I would agree totally. That's not what he would. To some extent, he he operates at two levels. I think it's very clear. And and if you had watched the the past Olympics that that Russia actually hosted, Putin is very much what I would probably call an ethno-nationalist. He sees a greater Russia, a uh, a new Russia, which is really a replication of the old Russian empire where uh, ethnically Russian speakers and Russian cultural influence goes way beyond the boundaries of the current Russian Federation. But it, it's, it's, a, it's a racial language oriented eth eth ethnological if you will empire is probably the wrong word but sphere of influence has nothing to do with ideology uh at all it is it is russian it is not communist and that's the way he constantly refers to it, it as a matter of fact you can see it in his discussions recently about ukraine in which he essentially denied there was any such thing as ukraine that he he just doesn't see Ukraine as having an existence. Ukraine was Russia, whether it's little Russia, big Russia. It, by language and by culture, he sees it as part of Russia, and and everything else is being artificial. Real, real quick on that note. Um, so when you say that you see him as, as having a, a sort of ethno nationalist view of Russia. What do we mean by that? Because, I mean, we've also seen him make comments where he sort of tries to say it doesn't matter if you're uh, a Jewish Russian or uh, this ethnicity of Russian, we're all Russian, you know. Um, so how does that play into all of this? Because is it different from maybe how, how some people talk about ethno-nationalism? It's when I, I refer to it that way, I'm, I'm talking about it, honestly, from a, a an ethnology standpoint, I have had a background in cultural anthropology. He, he's talking about Russian culture, where Russian language is very, very important. Russian traditions, Russian myth cycles, Russian legends, basically a, a Russian way of thinking. Whether or not, uh, that's, why, that's why Putin is, is uh, so strongly attached to the Russian Orthodox religion because he sees Russian Orthodox religion as, as a, an embodiment of this Russian culture. Uh, he's certainly not, <laughs> there's no sign that he's a, a believer or a religious practitioner, but he does view that as a key part of quote unquote Russian culture, extending all the way back to the Tsarist empire. So I'm talking about ethnology and culture when I use the term. So then when we say sphere of influence, what do we mean by that? Because that's different from, you know, uh, it, it doesn't seem like he necessarily wants like world domination. You know, he 
he's very interested in a specific sphere of influence. So could you speak to what that means? Uh, yes, by in terms by sphere of sphere of influence. Again, it's it's more in regard to what the imperial powers believed back during the uh, nineteenth century that there were there were certain cultures that because of their the the values in their culture the 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 character that was embodied in their culture they simply had both the ability and the essentially the right to exercise a sort of geographic slash territorial dominion in other words it was it was the it was best for the world if they had a sphere of influence that extended broadly where they could bring their cultures their technology their political system their their governance and that would that would be for everyone's good certainly the British Empire felt that way. The German Empire felt that way. The French Empire felt that way. Uh, all the imperial powers viewed their culture as having a value far beyond their borders. And that entitled them to set up spheres of influence and, and seek economic power, to seek political control over quote unquote empires. And, and, and certainly, the United States displayed some of those same characteristics. Uh, you're all familiar with that in, in history, you know, the United States felt that it had the, the right to uh, dominion over the continent. You know, uh, it, that's why it tried to seize control of Canada, Mexico. It was during that particular age, that was simply a way of thinking that the the quote-unquote technologically advanced powers had had rights, and it was for the best interest of the world that they exercised dominions over certain spheres of influence, uh, largely economical but uh, cultural, you know. Uh, and and Putin Putin carries on that tradition and and feels that there is Russia has a character and a history that predisposes it to have a, a sphere of influence where it is the essentially the dominant cultural and economic power and that's that's what he would it, it puts Russia on a par with other quote-unquote superpowers we don't use the term imperial nations anymore we do use the term superpowers or, or um, even great powers great yep. powers absolutely but yeah that's what that's where I'm trying to go with that so then this NATO issue, uh, you mentioned earlier that um, Putin maybe didn't always have uh, this hyper-aggressive dislike um, of NATO and, and even, you know, had, you know, supported at times um, the possibility of the Russian Federation joining NATO. Why does that change? Why it changed, and, and I spend a lot of time going through the timeline for that in, in, in creating chaos because, you know, here in the West, the West didn't really see or pay that much attention to what was happening year by year after the collapse of the Soviet Union because the West, and of course the United States, was primarily concerned with its a new war against terror. You know, it was 
it, the Cold War was over. Its former adversary had, you know, the Soviet Union had collapsed. It had its economic problems, severe economic problems. You know, there, there were some concerns, but the, the agenda in the West and in the U.S. and in Europe as well was two things, dealing with terrorism and attacks on the West by religious terrorists, and, and quite frankly, dealing with, you know, the, the opportunities that existed to establish a new relationship with Russia, but that was, you know, weighed on down on the list priorities, that was simply an opportunity. So there wasn't a lot of attention paid. It, the West was open to Putin, Putin was open to the West. His, his first presidency was not at all hostile towards the West. Uh, and he started moving, moving back in a positive manner, leveraging the energy resources, as I mentioned earlier. Um, but what, what happened at the same time, while we weren't thinking about it all that much, we just assumed that the United States in particular, but uh, Europe, that we assume democracy is a good thing. And during the Bush administration, uh, the, the first Bush administration, um, it was felt to be such a good thing that the administration actually got some legislation passed. It was referred to as the Democracy Initiative, and it was funded quite strongly. Again, we don't think much about it these days. I'm not even sure we thought much about it at the time, but I, I can remember being overseas in England and seeing T-shirts that, that read had a picture of there's big advertising going on at the time milk the milk industry was using a, a campaign called milk and trying to pitch milk drinking these these t-shirts said got democracy and it was a real move to establish democratic institutions in the former soviet republics honestly and in, in all the republics and inside russia and it did reach into russia and and U.S. money went to fund um, all sorts of democracy-related initiatives, things that we kind of accept here, you know, that like political parties, uh, open voting systems, systems to, you know, encourage vote monitoring to create free elections and monitored elections and and remove the sorts of things where you know essentially to remove one party governance which had been common during the soviet republics and uh, there were actually non-governmental organizations that were very democracy oriented very liberal that put money into the same thing so Across Eastern Europe and the former Soviet republics, you saw money coming from the West to establish free elections and bring democracy, not only to the former republics, but to Russia. And uh, that all was well and good for two or three years until, quite frankly, Mr. Putin saw that <laughs> his presidency was threatened and the kind of control that he was used to and a lot of a lot of his supporters were used to which was more in the form of an autocracy if you will uh or an oligarchy than anything else was being threatened and at that point in time and by the way i'd recommend there was an 
an excellent article on CNN today by a, a journalist who'd been covering Russia for 30 some years, who walks through all of these same steps, having seen it on the ground in Russia. Um, this, for, uh, it evolved from being something that was positive, you know, democracy is good to democracy is a threat. And that was, that represented the first transition to, towards Putin seeing not NATO per se, but essentially Western influence and Western money and NGOs basically as meddling, as being political adversaries, as essentially becoming a threat to the established regime, his regime inside Russia. And that's when he started to swing away from, oh, we can all cooperate and we can all work together to no, you're a threat. And quite frankly, it was that political threat that he began to respond to domestically inside Russia before he even started talking about NATO. It, it was only after he managed to successfully win his second and what appears to be on the way to his lifelong presidency that he moved the Western threat from just being quote unquote democracy and, and open elections to NATO and, uh, and, and the EU, and both being military and economic threats. And it, this is a long story that happened over, over the slowly, gradually over the better part of a decade. And, and it was hard to see coming until it, it gelled and it gelled uh, first with the quote unquote color revolutions in Georgia and in Ukraine and Kazakhstan, but it really gelled to the point where Putin actually put his own reputation on the line in uh, political campaigning in Ukraine. And when he lost, uh, it was, <laughs> there was a Ukrainian election that was really a Putin, Putin versus uh, open democracy. And, and when his party lost, it, it moved to the point of active political warfare and, and on to where we find ourselves today. So there you go. That's a long-winded answer, but since it takes, you know, a couple hundred pages in the book, that's the best I can do. <laughs> so I want to get into what's happening today, but so there's this period, right? I mean, you have the fall of the Berlin Wall in, I believe, 1989. The Cold War sort of officially ends by 91. And then uh, Putin is inaugurated president um, on, I believe, the 7th of May, 2000. Is there anything in that period um, from the early 90s to 2000 that we should have been more aware of? Um, because R Russia was obviously a bit in tatters um, after the Cold War. Um, are there any blanks that we should be filling in uh, for that period before Putin comes to power? I, I the, the blanks that occur are really, and, and I don't know that's, that it's anything that we should be aware of, but what really happens during that period is that the West, to some extent, uh, and you have to be perfectly objective and say, at that point, most of the former Soviet republics, as well as Russia itself, represented two things. They, it represented a an opportunity to try to help establish a democracy is, is what I was talking about, democracy initiative. 
But it also, in doing that, it represented an economic opportunity. And that's the period where we see a lot of money investment by European companies, a lot of investment by American and Canadian companies um, going into both Eastern Europe and to Russia, and they needed the investment. They absolutely invest, needed the investment, but of course, it, it, one would be foolish to say that those investments were not made with the thought of making a profit. And so investment donations under the Carter administration and, and under the Bush, money was given to Russia, but money was also invested in Russia. And I think what happened that, that we didn't realize is that's, that's all fine, well and good in the beginning, but after it goes on for some time, it created suspicions. It wasn't just, you're not just our friends, you're not just investing in us, you want to control us. Or, or you're uh, looking to benefit off us and what's in it for us, yeah. Absolutely. So even with the best intentions, in all honesty, that, that's hap that happens all the time, you know. Uh, at, at first, it's all good. And then it's like, well, when is too much? And what's your real agenda? And so those suspicions, I, I would say they weren't really the controlling factor at the point in time that that Putin became president. Uh, and I, I would, but they were there. And actually, the interesting thing, they were there, were there to the extent that the, uh, the it was during that period that the Russian Federation reestablished essentially what had been the KGB because there was a period of time in which uh, Russia was so oriented towards democracy that it had shut down a lot of its own internal security forces and and you know you don't need it if you're an open democracy and you're not in a cold war it was during that period of time in which they became a resurgence. And I actually outline uh, in Creating Chaos how the FSB, uh, for example, the Federal Security Agency in Russia, reinstituted itself and actually started practicing some very effective uh, techniques of recruiting Western business people as double agents and fellow travelers. And that was, that was probably the first sign uh, that was really not noticed in the West that the game was resetting and that the suspicions had returned and we were on a, a tangent to not being, the West was not going to be viewed as, as offering support, but as a threat to offering control. So then what are we to make of the actual now invasion uh, that has been undertaken by Putin, what he's calling uh, a, a special military operation? Uh, does, does this make sense to you? Uh, what do you think? I mean, I, we can't read minds, but uh, what is going on in Putin's sort of mind space? What, what the strangest thing to me and what worries me about this is that and, and I've, I actually wrote another book called In Denial that uh, compared 
undeniable and covert political warfare during the 20th to the 21st century. And I, I brought out the fact that Putin was, was initially carrying out some amazingly effective low profile actions uh, that were gaining him a lot of traction. Uh, he, he, effect, he effectively using a mix of economic warfare, uh, political manipulation, uh, leveraging not only his natural resources, but leveraging his, his oligarchs and uh, leveraging hugely expanded Russianary, Russianary, Russian mercenary forces, which he deployed in the Middle East and in Africa, uh, was really well on the way to establishing a, a large-scale power base through the Mediterranean, through Syria, into Central Africa. I think it's interesting today. If you look at the news, Russia is touting that it's recruiting volunteers to fight in Ukraine from Syria and from Central Africa. And that should, not a surprise to me, considering how effective he's been, but it, just the thought that Putin would be bringing Central African military volunteers to fight in the Ukraine seems insane but the point is he was he was very focused very tactically sophisticated doing lots of things under the radar i mean he was doing things and have enjoying successes he had brought something like six former soviet republics back within what you would call the russian sphere of influence it essentially established governments in those states uh, including most recently in Belarus last fall, that were literally under control of Moscow. Yeah, I was going to say a lot of people sort of have viewed Putin prior to this, and I, this isn't like saying it's a, a good thing or a bad thing or a moral thing, but a lot of people sort of uh, have talked about Putin as, as almost being a, a master chess player when it comes to the grand chessboard. And then this happens, it seems very um, out of character in a lot of ways. It does. And I, I've done several interviews saying exactly the same thing over the last two or three years talking about and in the book talking about how tactically sophisticated and successful he was being. And what throws me is that he literally was using his standard techniques that he's developed over the last was certainly since 2014, uh, uh, 20 probably 2012, 2014, using techniques that he's been using for the last seven, eight years and been very successful with to literally take control of Belarus as recently as last September with no fuss, with no just, with some money and with the Soviet military and suddenly Belarus is declared as a new union state, which is the way he refers to it. Um, and the, the leadership of the two nations are supposedly planning everything together. You know, Belarus now will accept Russian nuclear weapons. You know, so he just brought that off last September. What, what would make him change tactics so substantially and, and literally tie up estimated, estimated 70% more of his entire conventional military force in Ukraine. It just, it's worrisome 
because there's no good explanation for it. Uh, he could have even, he could have gotten what he wanted, what he claimed to have wanted in his special military operation. In fact, Putin said, said this a, a couple of days ago. He said, well, one of my options was simply to use the Russian military to take over uh, Nuvo Russia, which he refers to as, as the essentially the eastern third of Ukraine, and create that. And, you know, that would, that would have been a special operation, which is what he started referring to in the beginning. Uh, you know, the, the, his first announcements about this military conflict were simply that he was going to go in and protect the separatist enclaves in eastern Ukraine. But so that, that, that's uh, specifically for my listeners. That's Donetsk and Luhansk. Right, exactly. And, and I think the expectation would have been that, you know, that was, that was very in line with what he had been talking about, what he'd been doing. It would have allowed him to, example, link Crimea uh, with those enclaves and 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 expand, you know, through through what was the traditional Russian sympathetic, you know, culturally bonded part of Ukraine. Um, but then suddenly, over a matter of a week, it became a full scale war, which he still doesn't acknowledge. Uh, it's almost it's almost like he's operating in a in a different mindset whatever is going on in his head and even what you hear from the Russian diplomats appears to have no relationships to what's happening on the ground in Ukraine. And even the military analysts are suggesting that the Russian military drive is, I won't say failing, but is, is not proceeding as anyone would have anticipated because Putin didn't give them the right directives, the right situational analysis. His, his view as to what was going to happen was so totally out of line that they didn't prepare for the right war. It, it even seems like uh, the, the propaganda blitz you would usually see before a war uh, wasn't as intensely undertaken in Russia. It seems like even people in Russia were taken off guard to the point where you're having uh, you know, when, when this started, you were having a lot of uh, protests. And, and the only thing I can attribute that to is that Putin himself, because of this worldview that we've been talking about, uh, his, his concept of what was going to happen was is driven by this worldview that Ukraine really is Russia. The people there are really, he feels that quote you, unquote, not to interrupt you but do, sure. do you think he had this idea that he would be greeted as a liberator by ukrainians oh absolutely see he, we can find exactly where that started he feels that going back to the original uh, elections in in ukraine and especially the le- election in all the way back to 2004 and then 2014 his view is that Ukraine is Russian and Ukraine would have voted for the Russian candidate, that Ukraine as a whole, uh, that it was, there was a criminally stolen election. Now, if this sounds familiar, it is familiar 
to us now, but he has maintained for years now that the wishes of the people of Ukraine are being frustrated by this small elite that has stolen the elections and taken power and is, is opposed by the bulk of the population. In other words, basically a, a, a sort of U.S. NATO-influenced Keller revolution is what you're saying he sort of probably believes in. He, he absolutely believes that. And, and one of the reasons he believes that, in all honesty, I think, is because he personally campaigned in Ukraine. He, Russia had the West, you know, it's not that there was not Western influence and, and Western money and, and you know, it's, it's not that it was, there was not a, you know, kind of a political battle going on between, you know, Western-oriented candidates and, and Russian-oriented candidates. Putin put put himself on the line. He did campaign speeches. He did he met with the politicians. He essentially campaigned for Russia in the Ukrainian election. And when his candidate lost, he felt that it had to be stolen. I mean, if that sounds familiar, that's a particular mindset. He he is. I don't think there's any doubt that his his mental orientation is that he does not lose it if he lost it's because it was stolen <laughs> it, it also sounds like he believes that i mean you know i i'm not i, I think there probably was you know western money that went into uh, sure. ukraine but it, it sounds like he just does not believe that there's any possibility that ukrainians have any kind of their own agency in any of this he doesn't. And, and by the way, in, in the book, in Creating Chaos, we, we now know in the book, I lay out exactly how much money was. The good news is at the time, uh, and, and at least a few years ago when, when I was writing that book, there were a bunch of really good independent Russian journalists who covered the Ukrainian election. There were Ukrainian independent journalists who covered it. And, and in the book, I lay out exactly that election campaign, how much money was coming from which side, how much was coming from the West, how much was coming from which NGO, how much was coming from Putin, how much was coming from Putin's oligarchs. It, was, it certainly was a battle. There's no doubt about that. So it would be wrong. But the bottom line is that Ukraine and it's clear that the majority of Ukrainians, other than in those Eastern enclaves, lean towards Western culture and Western influence. And Putin just can't see that. He, he really can't. So when he lost and when his candidate lost, the election had to be stolen, which means to him that the majority of Ukrainians across the country are really in his corner. And, and really would welcome him. I, the other thing he doesn't see honestly is he does, not, he does not understand the extent to which the Soviet experience in the Ukraine is still remembered by tens of thousands of families who lost large numbers of family members under all the way back to Stalin. I mean, there were, there were purges. You're talking about the famines. Yes, yes. Uh, he doesn't see that. He, he can't see that. It's just, it, there's, you know, he, he just, he sees the Soviet Union as having been a positive force. He, he, he can't relate to the fact that, 
I mean, quite frankly, a good part of especially the Western half of Ukraine was so violently opposed to Soviet control that initially they actually had forces that joined the Germans fighting against uh, the central Soviet government until, you know, there were mass purges and, and executions. He's he not going to see that. So, yeah, to answer your question, he feels that the Ukrainians would have welcomed them and all he had to do, and he said this, we know he said this, is if he could just remove those evil quote-unquote Nazis that somehow have taken control of the country, then he will free, free Ukraine. It's pretty clear tactically now that this, this campaign was supposed to start with a decapitation exercise that would have taken out Zelensky and the Ukrainian leadership, and he would have had control of Kiev within 24 hours. Just just as he did, as the Soviet Union did in Afghanistan. Uh, Ukraine was supposed to be a model of the regime change that the Soviet Union had executed in Afghanistan, where the first thing they did was to send paratroops into the capital and execute the Afghan leadership. Putting it another way, it's it's almost as if, from what you're saying, it sounds like the mind space you view Putin as being in is that he sort of just views all of Ukraine as, as being under, it's it's like they're all, uh, in his eyes, uh, Stepan Bandera, you know, who, uh, you know, Stepan Bandera, I think, is a very loathsome character, but I don't know how anyone could equate all of Ukraine with that. Yeah, you can't unless you, you can't unless you view all of Ukraine and it, he views Ukraine as uh, essentially, I won't say this, I, I, it's the wrong term, but, but the point is he, he views Ukraine in, in two aspects. It, the, the general Ukrainian population and this general Nazi leadership that somehow has control over it, uh, which, is, which is why, unfortunately, we're starting to see today, and I don't know if you follow it, in the territories that they've taken, they are actually now taking uh, mayors and elected officials into custody, and they're going to be can't begin uh, purges. Uh, no doubt there will be mock trials. They're accusing them of terrorism against the uh, quote unquote Russian state, and I'm, I'm sure they'll be executed. Uh, that's he views a physical elimination. He thinks that will solve the problem. All he really has to do is, you know, take a few hundred people into custody, eliminate them, and then Ukraine will will be free and he'll be in control. So, so he basically views all the leadership as as being these sort of, um, you know, ultra nationalist Ukrainians. And if he just gets rid of them, uh, everything will be fine. That's sort of yeah. his view. Okay. I mean, it's amazing that he would think that Zelensky, <laughs> the, the president of, you know, Ukraine is a Nazi. I mean, that, that shows you how he, he's convinced himself of this. He, he really is. He, he's built his own, his own worldview that is, is out of touch with reality. And I, I think that's the answer to your question about his military campaign. His military campaign is out of touch with reality as well, because let's be honest, he is going to 
bombard Ukraine back into the Stone Age or something close to it, and then expect to rule it as a, you know, compliant nation. And that never works. <laughs> that's, the other, that's the other thing I don't understand. So does he want to take all of Ukraine under his thumb? Because to me, it would seem like uh, Ukraine would actually prove uh, unmanageable for uh, Putin. And I, I also don't know what the longer game is here, because if he wants to, say, restructure the Soviet Union, I mean, there's already former Soviet states that are part of NATO. What, what is he going to do? Try to bring them back into the fold and then start World War Three? I I two things. I don't think anybody can see it. Now, if you went back two weeks ago, his end game in his mind, I think, would make perfect sense. All he has to do is decapitate. The, if he could take out the current leadership and replace it. We're, we're two weeks ago now, then he would have a nation very much like Belarus. And I have I've actually read an editorial that was printed in a Russian newspaper the day that the invasion occurred. And the editorial is written as if it had succeeded within 24 hours. Now, it's, it's been removed, but fortunately, everything on the internet stays on the internet. You can even locate it and read it. But it's written as if within 24 hours, Belarus is a union state and Ukraine is either a union state or part of the, the economic co-op of Russia and the former Soviet states that it now really has in its sphere of influence. And it's all over and everything is great, just, just as what happened in Crimea. I mean, in Crimea, uh, at first Putin said he had nothing to do with the revolt there. About three months later, he said, well, yeah, our Spaznet's troops did make that happen, but of course, we're not going to occupy it or control it. It will be an independent country. And within six months, he had orchestrated a vote, quote, unquote, vote. And now Crimea is totally a part of Russia. I expected, I think he really expected to do the same thing in Ukraine. That, that was his end game. Ukraine was to be the same end game as Crimea had been. Now, two weeks later, I'm not sure that he has an end game. It sounds like you don't think it, it was about um, him wanting, because he would say, you know, uh, Ukraine has to remain neutral. They have to remain neutral. Uh, they can't join NATO. You, you think that there was something else going on there? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's what he is saying. That's what he is. There are, are two things going on. Now he's taken a position that Ukraine has to be neutral and Ukraine has to be denazified and Ukraine has to be demilitarized. I mean, those are, those are the, the three things. It has to be, it cannot, they're insisting Ukraine cannot join any bloc, not just NATO, but the EU or any other commercial bloc. Yeah, so in other words, he, he's, from that view, he's saying he wants to be the buffer zone, essentially. I, I don't even think he wants it to be a buffer zone. I think he wants it to be within his sphere of, he wants, he is assuming that whoever is, is elected, right? you're not going to have free elections again, right? It's, it's not going to happen. 
whoever is in control, in charge, in whatever official government, puppet governor or not, is, is going to be reporting to Moscow. So he, he assumes that Ukraine will be, will be the same thing as several of the other, like Kazakhstan or literally there, they can do whatever they want as long as their trade agreements and their economic agreements comply with what's best for Russia. And as long as politically um, they're under the control of Russia, which means they're not going, they will be affiliated politically. There's a, a term for this new, you know, economic co-op. They will be part of this co-op so that they won't be bonded to any foreign nation, you know, not just NATO, but especially he's concerned about the EU because the EU is, has kind of come back over the last two or three years and is in the position to, you know, all, all Putin and really all Russia has to offer right now because they've, it's been so easy for them is energy. And so they don't have anything to offer Ukraine or anybody else, quite frankly, other than energy, which means if you don't have them under your political control, they're apt to lean towards sources of all sorts of materials and goods and entertainment, et cetera, that Russia is not there to provide. So the last question I had here is, what does this mean for the sort of geopolitical grand chessboard? Because it, it seems like uh, we, we were talking in emails before that uh, there may be a chance that um, Putin uh, with nuclear weapons and a few other factors uh, is sort of in his mind seeking uh, geopolitical parity with the US on one end and China on the other end. Um, so, so how does this affect the relationships? Like, how does it affect the players on the chessboard? Where does China stand, Russia, the U.S.? And, and you know, what does this mean for other countries, um, including the, the Latin American countries? Well, I, I think the first part is that actually up until two weeks ago, he was actually in a very strong position to be, you know, a, a player. Uh, Russia was because of its inner energy reserves and because of the tactics that he's been been following. I mean, quite frankly, he gained Russia a, a dedicated port on the Mediterranean in Syria, which Russia had never had. Uh, he was able to, to route uh, a good part of his huge revenues uh, from oil and natural gas to military spending. I mean, in a very enviable position, he could he could literally was was making enough money off energy sales to take keep his military very sophisticated uh, in high tech weapons while keeping the public sector totally satisfied with all of the things that they could buy primarily from the West. It, it was a a much stronger position than the Soviet Union had ever been in. Uh, that's where he was. Now, because he miscalculated, he's going to be under, I mean, truly, he has made himself a para and Russia a para nation. Uh, uh, 
yeah, they're going to sell energy. Absolutely. They're going to make lots of money off energy because of the chaos he's created, but they're not going to be able to do business the way they were able to do business. And everybody is going to mistrust them before, you know, that nobody really, nobody thought that they were evil, quite frankly. It's, you're going to find very few nations that feel the same way about Russia as they did two weeks ago. So he's, he's undermined his economic position. He's exposed himself, the tactics that he was using so successfully, you know, who, who's going to trust Russia now? Uh, you know, who, who's going to invest in Russia now? Uh, so I, I think he's, you know, unfortunately, that won't prevent him at all from brutalizing and possibly literally occupying uh, Ukraine. But it, it's not going to take him. It'll, it'll take Russia down over the long, longer term because it'll take them down economically and geopolitically. Even you follow what's going on today. Now they're complaining that China is not uh, going to be selling them certain aircraft parts, you know, and is, is perhaps su supporting them with propaganda line, but not necessarily supporting them from a business standpoint. Yeah, it sounds like that, that I've told people this before, but I'm not sure that China and Russia are always going to have the same interests. A lot of people see them as connected at the hip right now, uh, but I'm not sure that's even true. I feel like they both have their own game they want to play. China, China was attempting to leverage Russia. I, I, I truly believe that. And in fact, uh, interviews with some of the, the, the Chinese folks, you know, there's a lot of investment going on in Chinese companies in Russia right now, but they think that's because it puts Russia in a weak position and that they will be able to buy things from them at a very good price because Russia won't have that many markets. So essentially, um, rather than being paired at the hip, at the moment, I think Russia has actually exposed itself to China because it's going to need China so much as a market. Uh, and Russia is going to need China more than China needs Rust Russia, quite frankly. And the last thing I wanted to mention, I promise to let you go after this because I know we went a little over time. What do you think this means for the the sort of geopolitical chessboard going forward, because all, all eyes right now are, of course, on Ukraine and understandably so. Uh, but, you know, other players are probably thinking about, well, what can I do right now? You know, I, I'm thinking of, um, you know, Saudi Arabia and its, its conflict in Yemen. Um, there's all these different conflicts going on in the world and on this chessboard. Uh, does this event change the game at all for all the different players? Uh, are we going to see an increase? in uh, covert political warfare from all sides, where could this be heading in the bigger picture, I guess? I, I think a couple of things jump out at me. I would have viewed, if you'd asked me a year ago, I would have viewed Russia as actually being having an initiative and being positioned to advance its interest, especially in Africa, uh, primarily in, in Africa, Secondarily, right, right. The, I, I think through uh, groups like the Wagner Group and whatnot. Yeah, right. Exactly. Uh, secondarily, in South America, leverage 
leveraging energy groups and with those special tactics. I, I think that's gone away. I don't know. I don't know any place that it now has will have the initiative. I think if anything, this is has strengthened uh, OPEC. It strengthened the the oil producers because uh, essentially. It, it's made the market chaotic and questionable and it, it's raised the pricing. And so it, it's, it's, it's strengthened the UAE, it's strengthened Saudi, uh, it's, it's perhaps even given uh, Iran. Uh, I, I think two weeks ago, there was very likely going to be a, a new negotiated deal with Iran. Now, given what oil prices are, uh, as of today, you see Iran backing off that a little bit. Uh, so I think this has leveled the playing field somewhat. I really feel that that a month ago, the initiative was with Russia and with China. And now uh, Russia is, is, does not have that initiative, and China is kind of resetting, deciding how it's going to play the game. I mean... Uh, before, you know, months ago, a few months ago, you had Russia and Chinese military exercises all over the Western Pacific. I don't know that we're going to see that again. Um, and the other thing we have to be honest about is Russia is in the process of gutting its conventional military. And a lot, large part of it's, I mean, they've, they've fired over 700 long-range crews and ballistic missiles in the last two weeks. Uh, with the sanctions that are going into play against them, it's, it's going to be questioned as to how quickly they could build that machine again. And other than their nuclear weapons, uh, they have put themselves at a huge disadvantage with NATO. Uh, I mean, right now, if they even thought against going against NATO, it would be insane. Um, so I, I don't know if that's a full answer to your question, but I think that they have, they've definitely taken themselves out of the initiative. And if anything, they've given, uh, they've given some more power to players in the Middle East who were kind of, you know, no longer the players that they had been because quite frankly, oil wasn't the factor that it is now. It, it, look at some of the, you can, you can see the change in that equation. Uh, the U.S. started negotiating with Venezuela a week ago and talking about removing sanctions, helping their industry. That's uh, what I was actually very briefly going to ask you about. Um, what, what does this sort of mean for uh, South and Central America and, and the Global South? Because I think the Global South is, you know, in many ways, rightfully skeptical of the U.S., but I'm not sure they're going to necessarily stick by Russia on this. That's that's exactly why they put it. In, in fact, if they maintain a realistic view, I mean, if they maintain a realistic view that they have a resource and they need to, you know, bargain for it in a if capitalistic sense, you know, nobody's going to do them a favor, but you can do a deal. I think there's a, a lot of opportunity there for Mexico, uh, South America, other, I mean, there are 23 or more countries in OPEC. And quite frankly, 
it represents a, a place for a lot of them to up their production and probably find people willing to invest. Let's face it, all of those European companies and American companies who are no longer going to invest in developing the Russian oil and gas infrastructure are going to go someplace else. That's, that's something I, I think that Putin did not even think about was the fact he, he, he didn't think about the fact that the West was really supporting his oil and gas industry to the extent it was with technology, with, with professional workers, with investment. All of that money is going to be redirected. And that changes the game, not immediately, but long term. And it's just that he's, he's removed Russia from so many long term, so many of the things that he, he probably didn't even think about uh, in making the decision that he did. In other words, just to wrap this in a little bow, it, it sounds like regardless of where anyone stands on, you know, uh, the details, you know, ultimately, it, it sounds as if Putin, with his decision to invade Ukraine, uh, has reset the chessboard in a lot of ways. He has. And I think it was I think it was an emotional decision. The best that I can credit it is. And, and I, I don't want to draw this analogy too strongly, but he made emotional decisions like that and that are based on worldviews and, and the things that we were talking about are extremely dangerous because they're not made objectively, sort of like Hitler's decision to invade Russia. <laughs> it's like, wait a minute, who advised him to do that? Nobody. Um, you know, they're just... They're emotional. They're made by different criteria. They're in kind of divorce from reality. And it it always goes bad. So, yeah, I think it it's reset the geo, geopolitical chessboard and, and it's terrible for Ukraine. And being kind of hawkish, I'd probably give Ukraine more help than we're giving them. But in any event, it's terrible for Ukraine and it will be disastrous for Russia, I think. Thank you again, Larry Hancock. Thank you for having me. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversations with Larry Hancock and Mike Swanson. As always, if you support the work here I do at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. You can join at either the $1, 5 10 15 or $100 tiers. Any amount will help. And with that being said... Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views. With Jerry Mike to Parallax Jerry with Jerry The way out is not simply to say, don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm. I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. 
Fiki Fai, I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.